This is Hard Beautiful Journey, a safe space to be open and honest, to speak truth and harness the power of vulnerability and sharing. Unravel the strength of connecting through conversation, from mental health, trauma and addictions, to grief and spirituality. This is the podcast to use your voice, because when you use your voice, you ignite your soul. I am your host, Tiffany Vaughn. Join me as I help others talk about their hard, beautiful journey. I know they will inspire you as much as they inspire me. So let's get started. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to episode 59 of Hard Beautiful Journey. I am so grateful that you are here today to hear this episode with my guest, Michaela Brewer. Michaela is a writer, speaker, researcher, mental health advocate, and the author of her first novel called The Sifting Project. She is also a proud Stanford women's basketball alumni and a former member of Team Canada. I loved hearing about her journey as a high-performance athlete and what that looked like for her over the years and how it brought both immense joy, but also difficult challenges that she openly shares with me. As a warning, there is open discussion about suicide, so if you are vulnerable at this time, please know that there is help out there and I have listed many resources in the show notes of this episode. Without further ado, here is my interview with Michaela. Hey, Michaela, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I am doing really good. We finally got together to do this interview. COVID had different plans, I think, for us to talk earlier than today because we've tried a couple of times and it just was not working. So I'm grateful that you're here today with me. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. So Michaela is a decorated basketball player and she played at Stanford University. So I thought today we would start with another would you rather, but basketball edition. How does that sound? I love it. Let's do it. All righty. I was a basketball player and a coach at one time, definitely not at your level, but I do know basketball. So I thought the basketball edition would be really, really fun to do. So the first question during practice for conditioning, would you rather do lines or jump squats for 15 minutes straight? Oh, I'd have to say lines actually, because track was actually my first sport. So I'm a runner. I would much prefer that. Me too. The thought of doing jump squats for 15 minutes, like I'm already throwing up, that would be awful. Lines are not enjoyable either, but I think I'd rather do lines. All right. Next one. Would you rather be known as a great rebounder or a free throw shooter? Ooh, I'd say rebounder. I mean, I'm small or smaller in basketball, but yeah, I don't know. I think good rebounders implies hustle and and grit. So yeah. And it's absolutely critical part of the game, in my opinion. I agree. Is your rebounding skills. So rebounding for me too. All right. Last question on the bus to games with your team. Would you rather sleep the majority of the way or have a dance party in the aisles? Oh, dance party in the aisle. (laughs) (laughs) Not speaking from experience or anything. (laughs) No, not experience. No. Okay. For me, it depends on the direction. And so beginning Like before the game, it would be sleeping Mm -hmm. after the game, it would be partying. So 
for sure. I got to make that clear for me because I like my sleep, but I definitely like to celebrate with my teammates for sure. So excellent. So let's get into this interview. I'm so excited to talk to you about your journey. I know that you've had an interesting journey as well. And so I'd like you to share with my audience a little bit more about you and what you've done with your basketball career and your book. Yeah, for sure. Ooh, I guess where to start. Well, I started playing basketball probably around grade two. I would have been eight. Um, actually ran track first. So that was my first sport, but kind of just fell in love with basketball and being part of a team versus running individually. So loved it almost immediately. It's a really funny story. Actually, I was doing just kind of goofy little ballet classes on Saturday mornings in my girly girl phase. And <laughs> I looked out the window because um, the dance uh, classroom actually looked over the court. And I looked out the window and I saw all these guys playing pickup. And I was like, hey, that looks fun. And uh, yeah. took off from there. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, it's just something I love to work at and kept playing, kept at it really in high school, kind of realized, hey, I'm pretty good at this thing and um, started getting some attention, played for Team Ontario, for Team Canada, um, and then was recruited to uh, play at Stanford. And I played at Stanford from 2016 to 2020. Now I'm kind of in a, a weird phase of deciding if I would want to play professionally, kind of trying out some different things in my life outside of sport, you know, just to see where my other passions can go. Um, cause I'm very big advocate of, you know, we're not just athletes. There's so much mm-hmm. more and there's a human beneath that, beneath that performance. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And I guess in that time frame, also I loved writing for a long time and that's something that, you know, I had time to really get into and dig into during the pandemic, um, when I couldn't play basketball and I couldn't go to the gym and I didn't really have that as an option. And so I kind of let writing expand a little bit for me. And I, yeah, I ended up turning into a book. (laughs) I can't wait to talk about this book. So, okay. I'm curious because you know, the movies, how they always depict us universities as like very, very into their sports and their players. Is that how it actually is? That's a good question. I mean, I think division one, I mean, Stanford women's basketball program won the national championship the year after I left. There was a lot of hype and that part of it was really, really fun. But I think there's also a very complicated side of this where, you know, athletes are put on a pedestal and expected, you know, to perform all the time and perform for everybody else. Um, And that gets placed at a higher priority than mental well-being, sometimes physical well-being as well. And that's the really tricky part because, there is a lot of hype and excitement and that's a really amazing part of the experience, but athletes are very quickly can equate that with their self-worth. And did you notice that with a lot of the athletes that you were playing with, that it was um, at the expense of their mental health? I think, yeah. I mean, there's statistics out there as well that really point towards the struggles that athletes have had. I think it's complicated because those things can all coexist, right? So you can love a school and love being there and love performing and love being an athlete and and also really struggle with your mental health because of that. And so it was very complicated, but I've definitely heard from my teammates and even speaking from my own experience that in many cases, yeah, mental health was, was sacrificed in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. 
So again, this is up to you to talk about if you are comfortable with it, but would you like to talk about your suicide attempt and what led to that and how, how that all played out? Obviously you're here, so it didn't work. Yes. Uh, thankfully. And I'm, I'm learning, learning how to say that I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely. I can talk about it ever since I was very young. I struggled with OCD primarily, and that kind of ramped up on me as a teenager. Uh, there were some things going on in my life, my family that impacted that. And I think I thought, you know, going away to Stanford, being on the other side of the continent so far from home, um, I'd be able to start over and escape that. But as we all know, it doesn't go away. It travels with you, mm-hmm. um, no matter what environment really that you're in. So I think going to Stanford in a lot of ways gave me a new environment, but also I was by myself. I didn't know as many people. And of course, the pressure to perform and had a lot of expectations for myself, um, just coming off a really great summer of Team Canada. And I think a lot of things just spiraled out of control on me. And I fell into a really, really deep, dark depression. And I really thought I didn't have a way out. And I felt like I couldn't verbalize that. I, I don't think I had the language to verbalize that either. It's not something I was taught. And yeah, that led to a suicide attempt, um, February, 2017. So I guess five years ago this month. So yeah, very tricky part of my life. Very. And I read somewhere also that your counselor who helped bring you out of the darkness and save you, um, also, but attempted and actually did commit suicide. Yes. October, 2020. Yeah. And I'm still trying to grapple with that and a lot of the emotions that come with that, because I think mental health care providers, if anyone, we place them on pedestal and expect, oh, you know, they're the experts in mental health care. Like, how could they ever struggle? They know all these things and they know about crisis intervention and they're not immune just because, you know, we think they're an expert and that I was slapped in the face with that really. Um, and it was devastating and I haven't been able to go back to therapy mm-hmm. because of that, because I was so afraid and felt so guilty and among other things and actually went to therapy for the first time last Wednesday. Oh, did you? Yeah. So trying to make good steps and mm-hmm. yeah, it's not easy. And I had, um, a suicide attempt when I was 16 and then I've also had a couple of very bad mental breakdowns, um, where I considered suicide in 2018 and my therapist, I call her my Jenna. She literally is who saved my life as well. And I couldn't imagine her not being here or her, um, committing suicide. Right. I I couldn't imagine it. And actually my mom told me last week, she was talking with her therapist and her therapist told me about that. She listens to my podcast and that it's helping her. And like, sometimes we forget that these are people that go home and have the same things that we are dealing with as well. And plus they're listening to all of our struggles all day. So like, it's so critical that they get the help that they need as well. Right. And so I absolutely feel for your pain right now. Cause I, I couldn't imagine my person that I trusted, you know, not being here anymore. So I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. Very sorry. Um, let's talk about your book. 
Yeah. Because I am writing my first book too. Amazing. <laughs> and th- it is hard. It's not easy to write a book, but I do love writing and I'm writing a memoir though. And so putting some personal stuff in there and like weighing what to put in and what not to put in has been a challenge, right? And your book is a science fiction novel and it's called The Sifting Project. Did you write a science fiction novel intentionally so that you could make the story or like, why did you choose a science fiction novel? Yeah, that's a great question because a part of me doesn't really know. (laughs) I think a lot of things just tumbled together, a lot of ideas that I had um, for a long time. And I actually have to give my mom credit for the title because one day we were just talking about memories and um, my grandma had a, had a stroke about six or seven years ago. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, help her remember certain things. And my mom said, you know, it would be cool if you could go into somebody's brain and sift through their memories. And I was like, Hmm, that would be interesting. <laughs> uh-huh. I love that title. It's so good. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'll tell my mom. (laughs) But um, so I kind of just came from there and I actually wrote the first draft um, in a class my senior year at Stanford. And it was a novel writing intensive class. And really our only assignment was to write 50,000 words. Um, And they didn't have to be good or that well organized. It was just to get all the possible ideas and character development and everything out on paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had somewhere to go. And it was like draft zero, its only job was to exist. And I kind of just played around with a whole bunch of ideas and the message that I wanted to share and who I wanted it to be for. And I guess, yeah, it just fell into science fiction, which really I think is reflective of life in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you have continued writing, right? I have not fiction as much, but I work for a mental health uh, software company for athletes. So I've been writing a lot of like lessons and that kind of a thing Mm -hmm. for the athlete community. So a different type of writing, but yes. Mm -hmm. And do you enjoy that? I do. Yeah. I mean, I love writing all sorts of different types of things, research, op-eds. I kind of just like experimenting with it, but yeah, I love all of it. I read one of your articles and I'm going to read a little bit from it. The article was hoops, mental health and sharing stories. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to put a link to it in my show notes because it was so good. There was one section. It actually stopped me in my tracks and like actually gave me pause. And we'll talk about that after I read it. Okay. Sure. Okay. When a localized war erupts, the rest of the world has a performative habit of getting involved when art, historical structures, and landmarks, the conceptualization of humanity is destroyed, dehumanized, or ravaged. The world doesn't necessarily act when humans themselves are battered, bruised, bleeding, and begging. We follow a similar trajectory with people who are mentally ill. We applaud those who can package their story into artwork, as I have done in writing. Though there is inherent clutter, wreckage and chaos woven into these stories and art, we readily discard the people who can't package their clutter, wreckage and chaos into something awe-inspiring or hopeful. If you can't build a cathedral out of the bricks of your experience, your humanity is almost considered nauseous. If you don't package your behaviors into the statement, this is depression, 
then those behaviors fall into what most people seek to sift out of their day. The people who struggle to translate their experience into the hero's journey are then left wondering, who do I tell my story to? Is it worth telling if I don't have words? I mean, wow. So the reason it gave me pause and it stopped me in my tracks is because I am one of those people who has packaged it nicely in a podcast. I'm packaging it in a book. You've packaged it in a book. And so I know because I've been applauded for my bravery and what I'm doing and telling my story. And, but what about those people who haven't done that or can't? Yeah. Like, let's talk about this a little bit more. What's your perspective on this for those people that can't find the words? Yeah. I mean, I think they get left behind and it's very, very sad because kind of like I said, in that little blurb, you know, we, we want to put the people who can do that, who can package their words well onto a pedestal and say like, this is an example of what mental toughness is. And this is an example of like how you get to the other side of a bridge. And even the people who are able to package their words well and do a podcast or write a book, they're never really on the other side of, you know, the bridge of mental illness and living with it. They're always kind of somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And some days you're further towards the start line than you are the finish line. And that's okay. But we don't inherently value that as a society. And that's what's really tricky. And I think it comes down to like, you know, what's available for crisis support. And I mean, I could (laughs) do a whole TED talk on that. But I think, you know, the resources that are available for people on a day to day basis, um, just need to be better. Mm -hmm. And we need to have more drop in availability um, because mental health care is really inaccessible right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agree a thousand percent that and, and just help for addictions um, and mental health and addictions go hand in hand. And talked about this on another podcast episode of mine, as you know, my brother passed away a few months ago from a, from a drug overdose. And There's just, in some cases, there's just uh, a barrier to getting into these places, like just something as simple as transportation and, you know, getting to a facility that can help them before it's too late. And so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. What's your thoughts on where we have come in the mental health space? Yeah. I mean, I think social media has done an incredible job of, you know, connecting people like you can follow therapists and psychologists and you know get little tidbits of information that way which is really good I think now of course social media can also be a bad thing so it's you know knowing that there's a balance and there's a boundary there but I also think you know with crisis response for the longest time it's just been the police your only option has been to call 911 Mm-hmm. And that's problematic for so many reasons. And sadly, a lot of people will choose suicide over 911 because they know that it's the police and that's their only option. And I think, you know, across Canada and the States and a few other countries in the world, there are crisis response teams that are beginning to be developed. I work a little bit with the Reach Out Response Network, which is in Toronto, Um developing those teams and who's going to be on those teams who are more qualified to actually respond. And 
I mean, just imagine a world where, you know, you could make that phone call and know that somebody was going to respond to your needs who knew what you needed and knew that it was okay. And we're going to validate that it's okay that you don't have words and you can't package anything together in that moment. You can't package anything together. You can't package making a meal sometimes for yourself or even getting out of bed. So packaging words together to say um, that you're not okay. Like even just saying those words, I'm not okay is sometimes hard for people to admit. Yeah. It requires an awareness that we're not taught to have for sure. Mm -hmm. And language that we're not taught as well. This is my soapbox for a second. (laughs) I think that in elementary schools and, and junior highs and high schools, there needs to be, in my opinion, like a wake up call where that is what is talked about sometimes more than math Yeah, is finding the language and the words to say, I'm not okay. And actually being applauded for it Yeah, because it's an epidemic more than anything right now. And the more that we can um, normalize it and be able to say, I'm okay. Like, I think the the older generations, I honestly think it's almost too hard <laughs> to change, you know, their mindset at this point, but it's not too late for a big portion of our population to say, okay, I am not okay. And I really need some help here. But then it's actually having those people there when they actually find the courage to say, I'm not okay. That takes a lot of resources. And a lot of people that are willing to help all of these people, right? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I have no idea how to go about doing all this work or helping get all this work in place. What what have you seen um, happen in this regard in the US versus Canada? Is it different or is it better? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, most of the work that I've done has been in the US. And, you know, going to university, I went to university in the U.S. So I saw a little bit more there. I'm a little bit less familiar about what's what's happened in Canada. But I mean, there's a lot of programming that's been put in, you know, and I can speak more to student athletes as well mm-hmm. and youth athletes. And there's a lot of programming that's gone in around like focus groups and, you know, how to start conversations and that kind of a thing. I think there's a lot less on the action side like what are you going to do with some of what comes up in those conversations and a lot less of like okay what's the actual root foundation of this whole stigma situation and how do we uproot that and kind of start over with everybody because you can teach student athletes let's say to be vulnerable and tell them that it's okay to be vulnerable. But if their coaches and their administrators aren't willing to be vulnerable too, then nothing's going to change. And I think there's been a lot of good effort and conversations and events and programming that have been implemented. And, you know, there's definitely an effort there, but I think, you know, there's another step that also has to happen with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. At the coaching level, for sure. And administration, because yeah, it, it all starts here. And people look up to these people, right? So if you're not on the same page, not going to get there. What is next for you? Yeah. um, 
my life is very kind of up in the air right now, which is sometimes a fun place to be, sometimes a scary place to be. Yep. But right now, my kind of main focus is with Time Out, which is a mental health software company for athletes. We're building applications that are really going to be able to talk to each other and make communication lines much easier for mental health care for athletes. And right now we're targeting um, institutions, universities in the U.S., working on closing our first deal, which is really exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, almost done development, some really exciting research hopefully coming um, along with that. And I mean, the goal is really just to save lives. And that's really what I'm invested in, whether it's with timeout or with writing. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out if I want to do anything else with my athletic career. I think that's still very up in the air. But yeah, a lot of it's just centered around athlete mental health and well-being and seeing how I can continue to help that space because I've really been there. And, you know, one of our mottos with timeout is created by athletes for athletes. Mm-hmm. and rebuilding some of that trust. So, yeah, that's important. So can you give me an example of what would be on this app for the athletes when it's ready? Yeah. So they would, well, there's two different applications. So there's a care team application um, that student athletes care team would have access to. And then there's an app for the athletes themselves. And those two talk to each other. Um, and right now we have appointment scheduling, we have a, a triage model for emergencies and being able to, you know, fill out some surveys about what your mental health is looking like at any given point in time. And then the care team is able to see that there is emergency resources. So we have like the timeout button where you can click that in case of an emergency and then all of the potential options will show up there for you. And really the the biggest thing is the fact that, you know, this student athlete app will communicate with the care team app. So there's that constant safety net. Um, and then that communication line is really clear and easy for everybody. That is so amazing. Do you think that'll ever come to Canada? That is the plan. Fingers crossed. I mean, we're a small company right now, but we are hoping to expand it. Yeah. I hope so. Cause that sounds fantastic and absolutely needed in, in the athlete community. It's needed everywhere, but for sure, I can see it in the athlete community. Absolutely. Where can people find you? Um, probably the easiest way to find me would be on Instagram at Mick underscore brew. Excellent. Okay. So I end every interview with what I am grateful for. And so I am grateful for my hairdresser having his four month old puppy. It was a Frenchie French bulldog and his name was Elvis. Oh my goodness. And he was the cutest thing in the world. And yeah, just made me remember how much I love dogs. What are you grateful for today? I am grateful for, I'll say my sisters. I'm home right now with all of my sisters. I'm the oldest of six kids. My brother isn't here, but all of my my sisters are. So grateful for them. And then I get to spend some time with them. Uh, We just had a really big snow. So did you? Sledding, which will be great. Pull out my inner (laughs) (laughs) 10-year-old. You're in Ontario, right? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I heard that you got a big dump of snow. My cousin lives there. So, well, that's fantastic. I am so grateful that you took the time out of your day to come here and talk about your mental health and the the things that you're doing to help in that space. Every little bit helps. Every big bit helps. Right. And it can't be done by one person. It has to be done by a whole bunch of us. 
And I'm just grateful that you're doing what you're doing to help in this space. It's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And likewise. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for your time. Of course. Thank you. So I know I sound like a broken record by now, but how lucky am I that I get to talk to incredible guests like Michaela? I love hearing how other people are doing their part to raise the volume on mental health and the ways they are making it easier for people to get the help they need. Mental health does not discriminate and it affects everyone. Michaela, thank you for the work you are doing to help other athletes have the connections that they need to feel safe and most of all heard. You are part of something that will save lives. Hopefully these apps will help those who can't find the words. Please ensure you check the show notes for important links such as how to follow on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave a five-star rating and review. It would mean so, so much to me. Also, if you haven't done so already, join the Hard Beautiful Journey community in Facebook to connect with other like-minded people. I would love to connect with you on socials, so please give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Hard Beautiful Journey and at Ms. Tiffon. Until next time, please be kind and stay well. Bye-bye.